0: Today's episode is brought to you by our amazing friends at Picmonic. On their behalf, I hope you enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav Badesha, and this is episode number six with Dr. Ali Hadder. Cocaine is a hell of a drug.
1: (laughs) I said, God
0: According to data from the 2011 Drug Abuse Warning Network, cocaine was involved in over 500,000 of the nearly 1.3 million drug related ER visits. That's about 1 in every 3 visits that are related to drugs. In the last 9 years, the number of people transported to the ER annually for medical emergencies caused or exacerbated by alcohol increased from about 3 million to 5 million. Of all these admissions, the CDC estimated that over 72,000 individuals died of drug overdoses in 2017. That was an all-time high in US history. Bringing our awareness and attention to these numbers, can't come at a more important time. That's why today, we're going to be looking at things from the perspective of a board-certified interventional cardiologist. Everything that we just discussed meets at the heart. Heart disease is the number one cause of death in the United States, and in this podcast with Dr. Hayter, we literally talk about everything related to the health of the human heart i learned so much about how these drugs can go on to affect our heart in the short term and in the long term we go on to discuss the latest in heart healthy diets and even connect emotional intelligence mental health and heart health i can't really say enough great things about this guy he really blew my mind dr hater is also a master educator on instagram so if you don't follow him already make sure you check out his page it's at your heart doc I'll be sure to leave a link in the description below. I'm checking his stuff out on the daily, and it really helps me stay up to date on the newest and coolest things in cardiology, so I definitely recommend checking that out. For those of you who haven't heard of Dr. Ali before, he's an assistant professor of medicine at Tufts University Medical School. He's board certified in internal medicine, cardiovascular disease, echocardiography, nuclear cardiology, interventional cardiology, and vascular ultrasound. That's basically another way of saying that he's a master of his craft and very well versed in all aspects of cardiology. Be sure to let us know what you guys think about our podcast. If you guys have been enjoying this content, please rate it five stars on iTunes. It would mean the world to us. Remember that you guys can send us a message on Instagram or tag Medspiration in your stories. If you take a screenshot of this podcast and upload it into your stories, we'll share your story and start a conversation with you. So definitely feel free to reach out, guys. Let us know that you're out there and that you're listening. And a special thank you to our sponsor today, Picmonic. I personally use Picmonic in my studies for step one directly off of my iPhone. Their learning system powers thousands of mnemonic videos and quizzes that have been scientifically proven to increase long-term memory retention by up to 331%. And trust me, they're not lying, there was things on the USMLEs that I would have never remembered if I didn't remember the Pygmonic. It sounds crazy, but it's kind of like Cliff Notes meets Saturday morning cartoons for higher education. They help med students, NPs, PAs, PharmDs, RNs, LPNs, paramedics, and pre-med students rock their course exams, boards, and become more competent healthcare providers picmonic has partnered with medspiration to help make learning and memorizing easier than ever so i know the ceo personally and we got you a pretty sweet deal here you could check them out for free if you sign up you'll get instant access to a free video and quiz every day no credit card required you can use the promo code medspiration for 20 percent off any premium subscription again guys i would really recommend checking them out and trying out their resources I promise you won't be disappointed. We'll have a link provided to you in the description below. And without further ado, let the Medspiration begin. graduated with powder, I dabbled later, I doubt it, my database of narcotics is growing long.
1: That shit shocks your central nervous system. There was times I did cocaine that was like electric. It was like when you put that thing in your hand. Cocaine is acting on the beta receptors and the alpha receptors. That are on your in your heart, in your blood vessels, how your neurotransmitters are firing. You get a surge of hyper awareness, you get a surge of, you know, almost jittery type of sensation.
0: Without the drugs, I want you to be comfortable in your skin. Okay. Do you wanna play with? Okay. No. Shallow to my new friend! I don't know if I
1: control this feeling, and I control it. Okay, it can also increase inflammation in the uh, in blood vessels, it'll increase the reactivity of your platelets and increase the reactivity of a clotting cascade. So okay. that can actually cause spontaneous clot formation within the heart artery, which will subsequently lead to a heart attack. But alcohol can have direct effect on the cardiac myocyte. Heart attacks these days are much less likely to die if they seek medical attention. But if you're down to try it, I know of a better way.
0: Dr. Ali Haider, welcome to the Medspiration podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, today, We're gonna be having a conversation with a doctor who is one of my medspirations in life. He's a board certified interventional cardiologist and a bonafide badass on social media, especially for us medical nerds. Dr. Hader, will you please give us an introduction to our audience and tell them a little bit about your background. Sure,
1: so as you said, I'm an interventional cardiologist, which basically means I do cardiology and in addition to that, I do procedures. So I'm kind of a clinical cardiologist but I did additional training to be able to do minimally invasive procedures where we do things like angioplasties and stent placements into heart. This also includes uh, other things such as inserting uh, minimally invasive valve replacements. We work on arteries and, you know, cardiovascular. So I do a lot of vascular stuff. We work on the arteries and the veins of of the body as well, kind of all over, Um, in addition to just, you know, taking care of um, patients' risk factors and regular medical cardiac issues originally from New Jersey. I work in Massachusetts now. To get to where I am, it was four years of uh, uh, college, a year of research, four more years of med school, three more years of residency, three years of fellowship, and one more year of super fellowship. So, you know, it was a, it was a trek to get to where I am.
0: I was gonna ask that a lot of our followers, and they wanted to know how much schooling it really takes. And, you know, I had some some med schoolers who were like, hey, can I specialize in cardiology? Do I do internal medicine? So what did you end up doing? Did you do internal medicine as a resident? Yeah. So
1: to get into cardiology, you basically have to do internal medicine for you know your three year uh, of internal medicine. Um, and after that, you got to apply and get into a cardiology fellowship. Some people do an additional chief year. So that's a fourth year of internal medicine to help their applications. Um, you know, different than You know, a lot of people ask me about cardiac surgery. That's completely different. So people who do cardiothoracic surgery, stuff like open heart stuff, bypass surgeries, you know, they go through the surgical route. So they're going to do five years of general surgery, followed by another two years of cardiac surgery. Of course, now there's a bit of overlap and gray zones in the world these days between interventional and cardiac surgery. But again, those are two independent pathways. Uh, I am, you know, essentially a medical physician who's training procedures, yeah.
0: My intention today is to discuss topics related to the health of the human heart. This is going to include cocaine and alcohol use, heart-healthy diets, intermittent fasting, veganism, vegetarians versus meat eaters, blood pressure. We'll get into emotional intelligence and heart health, heart disease. And then we'll get into the questions that our audience asked on Instagram. So yep. without further ado, let's just jump straight into the deep end. Okay. Okay. All right. So we had 36 separate mentions on the topic of cocaine and heart health yesterday. So okay, okay, it's safe to say that our followers are dying to know all the different effects cocaine can have on the heart. So I figured we'd do a clinical scenario for them out there, right? Yeah, totally. A future patient of yours is at a party and he's with all of his boys. They're drinking, they're having a good time. And then, you know, there's one guy in the back. He's like, yo guys, I got some blow. Who's trying to do these lines, right? So <laughs> They, they go upstairs, <laughs> <laughs> they sneak into this room, and one by one, they start snorting lines of cocaine. Can you explain to our audience what happens physiologically in the body of someone who does this?
1: Sure, There's, we'll, we'll touch on two things. What's going on in the acute phase, so when someone, let's say it's the first time you even did cocaine, Versus somebody who does it all the time, you know, there's these effects that happen immediately on the body. And then there's also some additive long-term effects, right? It's a a sympathetic, adrenergic surge, right? So how your neurotransmitters are firing, that's because when people take it, they get this high. They get this sense of they have a a positive energy. They feel like they can do anything and they get this surge, right? And um, the same things that are happening in their mind is also happening in their organs, especially their heart. So a um, couple of things that happen relatively quickly is your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, right? Mm-hmm. So cocaine is acting on the beta receptors and the alpha receptors that are on your, in your heart, in your blood vessels that in, normally you would think is almost like a fight or flight response, like when you get scared or you get a surge of hyper awareness, you get a surge of, you know, almost jittery type of sensations. And what cocaine is doing is kind of, you know, capitalizing on those receptors, right? So it's making your heart rate go fast driving your blood pressure up it's also acting directly on your arteries right so your arteries have these same receptors part of the way it raises the blood pressure these arteries will constrict right so your arteries are muscle lined so they're going to have the ability to relax and they're going to have the ability to constrict on the heart it's going to increase your heart rate it's going to increase the force of your contraction and the blood vessels it's going to cause them to contract and it's going to raise your blood pressure And this is kind of a cyclical effect. So that's kind of the immediate effect. And those same effects can be deleterious. Those same effects on the heart, even if, for example, nobody has ever done a line before, you know, you can't really predict how each person is going to respond. So if someone has a huge surge of those receptive response, you can cause severe constriction of one of your arteries of your heart to the point where it shuts down completely, causing chest pain and even leading to a heart attack. By the same way where you're making your heart squeeze harder and work harder, it's increasing the heart's need for oxygen, what we call oxygen supply mismatch, and that's going to cause potentially your heart to sort of burn some rubber and um, you know it can kind of cause a heart attack or some injury in those situations. So
0: According to the American Heart Association, during the first hour after cocaine use, the user's risk of a heart attack it increases nearly 24 times, right? So why, yep. does, that, why does that happen exactly?
1: it's within the first hour because you know cocaine is a very fast acting drug right so when you're especially when someone's snorting it versus you know um ingesting it it's going straight into the bloodstream very quickly so within that first hour is when the levels are the highest right you know you got buddies who can down eight drinks and they're fine you got someone who can down a half a glass of wine and they're completely gone cocaine's no different right everybody's going to have a different tolerance level each body so if somebody's more susceptible to the effects of that, you know, they're gonna have a more severe response to the cocaine effects on the heart. And just those things that I discussed and talked about, most commonly what happens in that first hour when you're talking about someone who has a heart attack is something called vasospasm. Most majority of the heart attacks related to cocaine are vasospasm, which means the arteries that are supplying the heart, the coronary arteries, again, by that same uh, reason that I mentioned, they're exactly, they're clamping down. And when they clamp down, from the effects of the cocaine that reduces the blood flow to the heart and that will lead to uh, a heart muscle injury or a heart attack. You know, it can also precipitate a traditional heart attack. Traditional heart attack meaning you develop a blood clot in the artery of the heart, right? So Mm -hmm. cocaine can also increase inflammation in the uh, blood vessels. It will increase the reactivity of your platelets and increase the reactivity of your clotting cascade. So that can actually cause spontaneous clot formation within the heart artery which will subsequently lead to a heart attack.
0: Okay, so let's see if I got this right. It's correct to assume that when one ingests cocaine, the heart rate rises, but the vessels, they constrict, right? So basically the demand of oxygen is higher for the heart, but it's receiving less blood, right? Exactly and that, right. Okay, so okay. If you,
1: if you got that right. So both, it's needing more oxygen, the demand is higher, but the supply is lower.
0: Okay, and then you combine that with the pro-thrombotic state, uh, and it could cause a heart attack. But then, so is this the same reason why you get a dilated cardiomyopathy? Is it like a chronic cocaine abuser, chronic ischemia uh, that leads to the heart kind of dilating, or how does that work?
1: So, good question. The answer is actually it can do both of those things, right? So you can have habitual users, chronic use that leads to kind of um, chronic ischemia, microvasculature ischemia. So this can, you can imagine this affecting some kind of microscopic blood vessels, and over time that can cause inflammation, injury to the heart muscle, By way of affecting the blood and oxygen supply, which can lead to either over time kind of additive small heart attacks and dilated heart muscle. But Mm -hmm. cocaine can also have a direct effect on the muscle of the heart. So, you know, this is a little less common, but it's been described. It affects the somehow, again, poorly understood, but, you know, probably due to inflammation, free radical formation, and having direct negative effects on the cardiac myocyte itself. That can lead to a dysfunctional dilated cardiomyopathy as you pointed out, completely independent of ischemia.
0: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. You know, so data from the twenty eleven drug abuse warning network. It reported that cocaine was involved in over five hundred thousand of nearly one point three million visits to the <laughs> emergency department. So wow. Yeah, that means one in three drug-related ER visits are from cocaine. So, anybody yeah, you know, out there, you know, think twice. Think twice. Yeah,
1: you know, I just posted a story recently on my Instagram. It was a couple. Of, I don't know if you saw that. It was a couple of weeks ago about uh-huh. a case that I had. A guy, you know, young guy came in. He did a derail of coke from the weekend, and then he came in. He had an inferior stemi, included his right coronary artery. We had to go in, you open him up. He got a stent in. So I had to read the riot act, otherwise healthy, 30 something year old dude. Most people you think, oh, everyone's doing it. I don't know how many, 10 million people have kind of used cocaine at some point. I think the number, I don't know what exactly the numbers are in the United States is crazy. You know, obviously not everyone's going to have a problem, but you can never predict. I saw cases of people who were like, yeah, you know, I don't do that stuff. My friend was partying. I said, I tried and boom, he's the unlucky son of a bitch that happened to, you know?
0: Dude, that happened to Len Bias, the basketball player. Like before he entered the NBA, he did a line. Oh, is that right? he died before he even entered the NBA. It was like on the day he found out, and it was just—it's wow. uh, a famous story, but you know, very unfortunate stuff right there. On to the next drug, though. So I wanted to discuss alcohol use, right? Oh, so yes, that's that's even bigger, if anything, right? So how does the abuse of alcohol affect the heart?
1: The alcohol is a tricky one because you know you'll you'll hear things that you know maybe a little bit of alcohol is beneficial to you, right? And then you hear things that how too much alcohol is negative to you, right? And, you know, that data is even out there, you know, especially even even in the Mediterranean diet, which, you know, we may talk about a little later, that advocates a glass of wine here and there as a part of it, you know, and there are thoughts that in moderation, one to two drinks a day, females half to one drink a day kind of thing, maybe that would um, reduce your risk of heart disease and stroke over the long run. And again, so there is some potential data to suggest that, but by the same accord, alcohol obviously has severely deleterious effects on a lot of organs, including the heart, right? So when we talk about alcohol effects on the heart, use in excess, this can cause an alcoholic dilated cardiomyopathy. So basically, you're developing congestive heart failure and enlarged heart and cardiomyopathy with a reduction in your ejection fraction in person who is chronic alcohol user or abuser. But alcohol can have direct effect on the cardiac myocyte, okay? I think maybe it's related to how ATP is produced or the cellular transport. So really on a cellular level of the functioning of the cells and it is dose dependent. So, you know, the more alcohol you use, the more likelihood that you could be susceptible to this and that can lead people to get, you know, very sick and have pretty advanced congestive heart failure. And again, obviously it doesn't happen to everybody. We all probably know people who are drinking a lot and nothing happens to them, you know, kind of genetic predisposition. This can cause um, someone to have a you know dilated
0: cardiomyopathy. Wow. So I know alcohol it's a suppressant, right? And you know, say I'm drinking alcohol, like it slows down my heart rate. Is that correct to assume that? Yeah,
1: it mean, it's dose dependent, right? So in smaller doses, yes, it's it may lower your blood pressure a little bit, it may relax your heart rate a little bit. But mm-hmm. in the higher doses, consume too much, it actually will raise the blood pressure and oh. it can kind of have a contradictory effect. Like it's kind of like any medication. If you think of a medication, you think about You know, the therapeutic window you have. Right. And -hmm. when you have too much of a certain medication, you're going to have side effects. What's holiday heart syndrome? Uh, Holiday heart syndrome. Right. So holiday heart is so this is another effect. So, you know, one thing is we talked about how alcohol, chronic heavy alcohol use can cause heart muscle weakness, but Mm -hmm. you can also have alcohol affecting um, the heart arrhythmias, all right, so it can affect the electrical system of the heart. So holiday heart basically means classically in the setting of a binge session, right? So you don't even have to be a chronic user. You could be somebody who graduated from school and, you know, had a binge session of alcohol, and then the next day you will develop atrial fibrillation. So that's exactly what holiday heart is. It's atrial arrhythmia. It's basically AFib that is um, caused by a binge alcohol session. It can happen to any healthy – in fact, this mostly you see in younger people. You know, Oftentimes, it's you know self-limiting. It can go away on its own. But it's very well described and um, it, with heavy alcohol, big sessions, yeah.
0: You know, I had a really simple understanding of it the way I thought – and you could correct me if I'm wrong. So I just figured alcohol is a suppressant. When I drink, it might suppress the – but you said chronic alcohol. It might not. And then what I figured is like the next day – one thing I noticed is when I check patients' blood pressure is like the, the night after drinking – their blood pressure is higher, their heart rate's higher, right? And I, I figured that, you know, maybe alcohol, like the next day, you get this rebound hypertension and this rebound rebound increase in heart rate, and maybe that will kind of influence the the atrial fib and causing not, quality of heart.
1: Yeah, and oftentimes you'll see it the following day. And why is that? Why is that? Because what happens when you're binge drinking or you're drinking the next day? What's happening? Your, your body wants more. It's withdrawal, right? So that's kind of oh. a cute withdrawal, right? So okay. when you have a hangover, what's going on when you have a hangover, right? Your body's in withdrawal. You feel like shit, right? Because you, your body, the alcohol is washing you out. Your brain, your body, your heart, everything—it's kind of, you know, as it washes that alcohol out, it's kind of going withdrawal. So that sympathetic response you see when you have a blood pressure spike, heart rate elevation—that's all kind of as your body is getting over that. Most commonly, the time, even two days after, sometimes where you'll get the uh, the holiday heart syndrome. Wow. It's when you're getting that rebound. Exactly right.
0: That's for all our college students out there. Yeah, Make sure y'all yeah, drink safely out there, right? So
1: That doesn't mean you're supposed to have a drink the next day. That just means like, <laughs>
0: drink less. Okay? The I eye opener. That's funny. Yeah, drink less. So, Doc, did you hear about the Global Burden of Disease Study? So, they they analyzed like, levels of alcohol use uh, in over 195 countries from 1990 to 2016, right?
1: Yeah, okay. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, yeah. And I wanted to ask you about the credibility of it, right? Because they they basically concluded um, doing a risk versus benefits analysis that no amount of alcohol was safe. And the study's authors, basically what they said is due to their potential of increasing the risk of cancer and over 200 different diseases, plus driving accidents and self-harm, there's more risk than there are benefits uh, due to alcohol consumption. So they actually came to this conclusion. What, What are your thoughts about that?
1: I mean, you know, these, it's always hard to kind of make conclusions on these kind of studies where, you know, they're registry-based studies using questionnaires or following these patients, you can't control for everything, right? And oftentimes, especially when it comes to alcohol, and when they're going by reported alcohol use, people are always going to downplay it, right? So when you think right. that, oh, even these people who drank three drinks a week, they did bad, but how do we really know, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, you know, I think it has to be taken with a grain of salt, because obviously it can cause a lot of problems, as you mentioned, you know, everything, vehicular like accidents to health problems to all these kinds of things so the therapeutic window is narrow it's kind of classic with the patients too you tell them oh you know a little bit of alcohol may be all right but they may t- you know you give them an inch they're going to take a mile you know in all fairness i don't i haven't analyzed a study in depth but my suspicion is you're going to find data you know it's always like a back and forth right they say is, oh first red wine's good for you oh no no alcohol is good for you you know it's yeah. the same story with coffee you know we can talk about that too i, I think at the end of the day the key is you know, it's moderation, right? I mean, if you're gonna drink alcohol, you got to drink it in a responsible way. You got to drink it in moderation. If you're gonna drink it, you know, they say one to two drinks a day. But then again, they they classify if you have more than thirteen drinks a week, that's you're an alcoholic, right? Yeah. So absolutely. it's it's got to be taken into perspective.
0: That said, in 2012, 3.3 million deaths, or six percent of all global deaths, were attributable to alcohol consumption. So wow. drink wisely. Next, I wanted to transition into diet. Uh, there's many diets out there, Doc. You know, there's a DASH diet, keto, paleo. People are going vegan left and right. So what do you what do you recommend to your patients, and what would you say about this?
1: It's a huge topic right now. I mean, diets are huge. I mean, there's one fat diet, next fat diet. In, I think in the world of internet in, in and in social media, it's got diets have become, yeah, become yeah. nuts. It's kind of like the data has kind of almost been forgotten. You know, there's data driven stuff. And then there's just like some famous person says, oh, dude, this thing is going to do this. And then it catches on. It's good, but things just become viral, you know. Oh, yeah. So I, I always tell people, you got to take it with caution. There is diets that sound good. Variations on the same type of diet. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, and we can chat about it. There's, there's not that much great data on a lot of diets, right? There's mm-hmm. anecdotal stuff. There's small studies. So I just caution people that always remember, despite what you read, you know, just because someone says, oh, there was a data-driven trial on this, you know, if it's 45 patients someone's following, it doesn't mean that necessarily proves anything. Another thing about diets, every disease, every specialty may have a different diet that's beneficial to that particular disease state, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, and and again, uh, to to be fair, I'm not a trained nutritionist. I don't pretend to be. Um, I'm sure you people out there who know a lot more than me. So, you know, I will try to answer and give you my kind of sense, um, based on what I know in my training, right? So, you know, what do I recommend to my patients? I mean, the two, I would say the two most recommended heart healthy diets out there are probably the dash diet and the Mediterranean diet. They're very similar in what the recommendations are, right? And it's almost like common sense, right? So what you think would be heart healthy is likely what these heart healthy diets recommend. So both of them are heavy on the plant-based, right? I mean, even though these aren't pure plant-based vegetarian diets. They uh, rely heavily on increase of whole grains, plant-based foods, with a much lower consumption of fatty meat, saturated fat containing um, animal pro- animal fat um, related products. I would say the Mediterranean diet is a little, it's more of a guideline than a diet. A DASH diet kind of dictates, okay, X number of portions of whole grains a day, you know, this many portions of fish a week this many portions of low-fat dairy, you know, kind of lays it out, whereas the Mediterranean diet is more of a guideline, right? It's kind of this pyramid we think about, where, you know, the bottom of the pyramid being the broadest um, um, point of it, it's all the fruits, the vegetables, the legumes, and all all those kind of heavy in the plant-based realm. Um, and the higher you go, the lower the, um, you know, the amount is. For example, the very top of the Mediterranean diet is red meat, which they only recommend a couple of times a week. And the uh, biggest sources of protein are actually fish. It relies on um, getting its fat content from you know healthy, unsaturated fat contents such as um, certain types of nuts and olive oil. Whereas the saturated fats, the trans fats, you know things with red meat um, and, and even um, the fatty parts of poultry and all these other kinds of meats that's thought to be um, um, the unhealthier things, right? DASH diet, similar again, uh, it, it's a little bit more lenient in the amount of how much lean red meat you can eat. It's more lenient in its dairy. Um, it's a more of a balanced kind of diet. And again, it's it, it's for all comers. They're kind of easier to, 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 to adapt to, right? You know, versus, you know, of course, I got guys coming in, you know, I'm eating a steak every day kind of thing, right? Yeah. So, all right, dude, you can't do that, you know? But I'm not gonna tell someone like that to say, you know what, you gotta go vegan not realistic you know the um you know mediterranean diet we actually have good data for it in the dash diet as well and mediterranean diet recently we had a trial come out that actually showed when they randomized patients to mediterranean diet um, versus a non-mediterranean diet they actually had a lower risk of heart attack and strokes and cardiovascular um death so it actually had a beneficial effect i i can't think of many diets if any diets that have a randomized trial with a large number of patients that showed that it actually had a positive impact on um, cardiovascular health. Is that because it's heavily plant-based? Is that because these they're eating a lot of olive oil and healthy nuts? No one can say for sure, but that's the kind of a model that we can kind of promote to people. As far as vegetarian and vegan, big, big fad these days. Extrapolating from what we know about the Mediterranean diet, even partly the DASH diet, I mean, these are plant-heavy diets. So there is no doubt that a plant-based diet is heart-healthy. We have studies, we've looked at numbers where people who've gone from, you know, a regular kind of omnivores to plant-based, their cholesterol has plummeted. Um, We know these people have said that, you know, the LDL cholesterol can be in the 150s, 160s and come down to the 80s and 90s with a heavy plant-based diet. Um, People try feeling better. It is difficult to follow, especially like a pure vegan. Like, I, I don't know, I can't tell you anything about vegan versus vegetarian. I don't think we even have that data. You know, the bottom line is, you know, it's tough sometimes for people. It depends on your population, right? Um, I think vegetarian diets can also be detrimental. I mean, you can't just say, okay, I'm giving up meat and eat french fries every day, right? And you know, people do that. Oh, I'm gonna eat eat pizza and french fries. Is that healthy? No, it's not healthy. (laughs) It's worse than eating meat. So it's gotta be taken into perspective. Just because you're not eating meat does not mean you're not gonna be eating unhealthy, saturated fats, trans fats, and things like that. Take a step back, the core of these healthy diets we talk about, the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, these vegetarian diets, it is plant heavy, it's reducing the amount of saturated animal fats. I'm going to add another thing. There is a lot of cloud out there. I mean, internet cult stuff talking about how vegan and vegetarian diet and some even these supp- people pushing a lot of supplements sometimes that, oh, my plant based diet will reverse heart disease. Need medications when you are on my diet, you know? So that's when things get a little over the top. But there are people who are claiming, oh, a plant based diet can reverse heart disease. And I have patients who come into me and who've had heart attacks and they say, oh, I don't want to take a statin drug, which is the most studied and effective drug in heart disease because I'm gonna go on a plant-based diet and I'm gonna reverse my heart disease. So there is a limit where things get a little overboard. You know, things are healthy, but making these kind of claims I think can be potentially dangerous at the same time. So we all have to be careful on you know how we approach things
0: and what our, our you know what our data sources are. So what are your thoughts about intermittent fasting?
1: I don't think we have enough data to say how does intermittent fasting actually affect heart disease right we don't i mean and i've looked it up before and we don't have much data you know we know that it is it is effective for weight loss so what is intermittent fasting so we're basically talking about dietary plans that are kind of i like to think of it as kind of following your circadian rhythm you're eating for a period of eight hours or 10 hours whatever it is you know 7 a.m to 4 p.m you're going to have your meals throughout that day and then after that you're going to fast yourself till the next morning and what is that doing it's the essential metabolic um, basis of that is you're trying to decrease your body's insulin levels. So when you're not eating, your insulin levels are going down, all right, because you don't have food stuff that you're kind of breaking down to metabolize. So you go to your fat stores, right? Your body uses the fat stores and uses that to produce energy. And that will occur when you have a long period of time when you're not eating. So you know, that means you can't be snacking, you can't be doing this and that. Um, if you want to do true intermittent fasting. And that's effective at weight loss. It's proven to be effective for some metabolic disorders, some, you know, people with diabetes and whatnot. That's right. Certainly pre-diabetics, metabolic syndrome people that can be very healthy. Does that translate it to less heart attack strokes? I don't know. We have data on rats. I mean, there's rat data that show that there's reduced cholesterol, reduced diabetes, and heart attacks, but you know, we ain't no rats. So, you know, unless we have <laughs> more um, data on humans, I, I, I can't tell you that it's, it's necessarily going to be beneficial at heart. But look, if that diet helps you lose weight, all the power to you, you know? And I always tell people when it comes to diet, talk to a nutritionist,
0: learn about it. Don't just read some wacky internet site. So am I correct in assuming that your growth hormone levels are way higher when you're fasting? Uh, I've I've heard that insulin and growth hormone, they work in opposite. So That's basically, perfect. when you're intermittent fasting, and you decrease those insulin levels, your growth hormone levels are higher, and it can help you actually pack on more muscle. Because I, I know a lot of athletes, and right. a lot of them intermittent fast, and they're freaking ripped year round. It used to be bulk in the winter, shred in the summer, but now it's just shredded year round intermittent fast. So is that is that a correct assumption to make?
1: Again, I'm far from an expert in um, you know fitness and diet, but yes, you are correct that that I think those you're you're kind of. Taking advantage of your body's natural, you know, hormone responses and negative feedback receptors. And yes, so as the insulin goes down, your growth hormone goes up. So you're exactly right. People who work out and people who are athletes, they take advantage of that. And it works. I mean, people lose the weight and they can change a little bit enough of that metabolic homeostasis in your body to promote that muscle growth and um, reduce those fat stores. Does that reduce future health benefits? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but yeah. um, what you say is correct. Yeah.
0: So I intermittent fast. I've been doing it for some okay. time, and I recognize like how do you do it? What is your what is your thing? I usually fast for at least twelve to fourteen hours, right? So after I have dinner, I just make sure for twelve fourteen hours, I just don't put anything in my body, and then after that, I'm mainly greens. I eat a lot of greens in the morning, uh, a lot of fruits. You know, I don't eat like heavy heavy meals until later in the day. I just have more focus that way. But then in between that window, you know, I'll get my protein. So I'll, I'll have yes. my eggs. I'll have my salmon. I'll have steak every now and then, you know. Like you said, as long as I'm getting more greens, I felt like that was most beneficial. I noticed, like you know, you'll, it takes about eight to twelve hours to deplete those glycogen stores and to switch over to fat burning. And then when you replenish that and you go exercise, it takes about an hour of exercise to deplete those glycogen stores again. So technically, if you're if you're intermittent fasting and you're exercising, it's possible to deplete those stores twice, right? Is this a is this fact or is this just kind of magical thinking?
1: I don't know the answer to that. I think what you're saying has probably been proven in terms of, you know, when they're evaluating, you know, numbers of patients are doing that and they're testing their, you know, when they're doing blood tests and evaluating it, is that responsible for that clinical benefit and that the benefit you get from the fasting? I don't know. But, you know, metabolically, it makes sense, right? You know, the the cycle between insulin and glycogen stores and fat and all that stuff, you're just taking, you're you're taking advantage of it, right? Uh, Outside the realm of what we we grew up thinking okay oh, this is the way to eat this is what we're supposed to do but is it really maybe yeah. if you're looking at metabolically and you know on how to keep lean and how to keep balanced maybe this is the right way to
0: do it right that's an interesting thought you know rather than just three meals a day so yeah I've, I've read the anecdote where they're like we used to be hunters and gatherers and when we were hunting and gathering there were times where we go days without eating but technically um when you fast or well when i fast my mind gets really clear after like two or three days. They said the evolutionary adaptation that happens there is when we are in a state of ketosis and our brain switches over to uh, using ketones rather than glucose for energy, it clears our mind and it it may have made us better hunters when we were hungry. It helped us survive. That was the evolutionary theory. Mm Have you heard anything of that? Is that?
1: Well, I mean, you can extrapolate, right? I mean, ketosis. So, you know, when we are talking about the ketone diet, for example, right? I mean, that's what we're doing, increasing um, the number of ketones that are circulating. And we know that ketosis and ketones has an effect on the CNS. For example, a ketone diet that has been proven to have beneficial effects for people with seizure disorders and CNS effects. So there is definitely a proven link that that causes some effect within the CNS. So that may be completely true because there's something is there is some connection there you know when you're talking about like uh, and fasting in that 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 window where especially our bodies and you know we're not used to that right but when things kind of settle down you get past that kind of almost like a withdrawal period right and then yeah. you're going to get into that period where like oh you know what this may be the moment of clarity where like oh this is this is this is good
0: we had uh, michael jordan and kobe bryant's trainer on our podcast and he he talked about how he makes his players instantly. They have to start fasting. And like for the first three, four days, they just have headaches and they're That's just like, they're screwed gross. up. But then like it's followed by clarity and it's he's one of the greatest mind body coaches. He makes the greatest athletes do that, right? So it's just so fascinating yeah. to talk about. I could talk about it for days, you know? It's just such an interesting concept. So I wanted to turn the page here and discuss the connection between mental health and heart health. Most of us were aware that our state of mind, it affects our body. So I know when I'm angry or when I'm stressed, my heart rate rises. I know when I'm relaxed or calm, my heart rate lowers, right? So how does the state of mind affect the heart?
1: If you're in medicine, you know that the CNS is connected to the heart, right? What is the heart innervated with? Vagus nerves, sympathetic nerves, right? So that's how the fight and flight response occurs. That's how when you have stage fright, you're getting your heart palpitations. It's all about what you perceive, what you see, what you hear. That's going to have a, um, an equal response out to the rest of your organs, especially um, to your heart, right? So we talk about this mind-body connection, but that's a real deal thing. You know, when you have these kind of acute effects, your um, you know, your heart rate could go up, your heart rate could go down, right? You could feel sensations in your chest and heart, depending on what the situation is. And, you know, that could be something as simple as hearing bad news or, you know, um, standing up for a speech and getting stage fright. But it can be as extreme as causing a severe negative effect on the heart itself. There's a wide range of effects that can, in the acute phase that can occur from the state of mind to what's going on in your heart. For example, stress, you know, how it can lead to pathological problems, right? Yeah. You've heard of the the, the infamous Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, I'm sure.
0: Heartbreak syndrome, right? A Broken heart syndrome, that's right. Yeah.
1: That's right. Yep. The broken heart syndrome. So I still find this to be a fascinating thing. And, you know, when we talk mm-hmm. about mind and body, this is kind of proof in the pudding how, you know, mind really is um, connected to the body and can actually cause, you know, serious problems just by what's going on in someone's head. Right. And not just beyond just simple depression. We're talking serious effects on organs. This unique disorder is when someone has severe emotional stress. You know, we talk about it and We call it a broken heart syndrome because it's most commonly occurring in the setting of a death of a family member or some severe emotional stress um, in that same kind of um, realm. And what happens is somebody comes into the hospital basically mimicking the STEMI. So they'll come in with severe chest pain and everything on paper with what they say, what how they look, and what their EKG shows, you suspect they're having a massive heart attack. And then when we go in there and we take a look at their uh, heart and arteries, we see that their arteries are clean, but we see their heart muscle is stunned mm-hmm. and weakened. Right? Okay. So you have this uh, heart muscle um, weakness that is pretty much indistinguishable from a large anterior wall heart attack. Self-limiting, usually this will get better. I mean, there are some cases where people can get very sick from that. Basically, identical to a large heart attack in some ways, um, all caused by just what someone is thinking. This has only been this really identified and discovered the last you know 15 years before that we probably had this happen all the time. we didn't even know it. Yeah. But I mean, there's no greater mind-body evidence connection to me than that syndrome. I mean, it's fascinating.
0: In two thousand and six, the American Heart Association, they incorporated this disease under the class of acquired cardiomyopathy. So it's yeah. a you it's, know it's a it's a real thing, which is pretty it's
1: insane. in the in the coding ICD ten coding criteria when I, you know, use it whatever it was before. And it's actually more common than people think. You know, I see it all the time. That's a perfect example of, you know, an acute phase, how someone who's completely normal one second, but then has some, you know, mental or emotional um, event um, in their mind that can cause an acute effect on, on the heart.
0: Perfect, because that goes into how perception of stress influences our physiology. I've done multiple posts on this on Medspiration. There was some studies published at Harvard that, you know, basically say, the key isn't to deny stress, but it's to recognize and acknowledge it. You know, when we're able to do that and find the upside with something that's stressing us out, there's basically one of two things that can happen, right? So individuals who have a more stress-hardy mindset, who are basically able to say, I think stress is advantageous for me. I think it allows me to be more efficient under pressure. It mm-hmm. gives me a sense of urgency and I have a stronger work ethic because of it. Basically, mm-hmm. what they found is the stress response that happens, the heart rate rises. It's more similar to the effects of exercise where it allows for maximum blood flow. But then there's the negative mindset where people who think of stress as something that sucks, it's the end of me man, like, you know, every time I get stressed out, horrible things happen. And they, they basically said that that goes into constricting the blood vessels, ramping up inflammation. And that's a question I'd like to pose to you. Is this a thing or what do you think?
1: I, I've heard this peripherally, you know, and I, I read about it. I, I can't say that I, I can answer that question. It seems to me a lot of it is how you're perceiving the stress and acting on it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, so yeah.
1: So what you're describing is this: you have a stressor so you take two different people, you know, maybe even the same stress, are you going to use that to put you down or are you going to use that to your advantage? You know, I'm, for example, like, you know, if I have a presentation due, I know until the night before I'm useless. And then the night before mm-hmm. I'm on my, game, you know, I'm like, oh, I got to get this done. Motivates yeah. me. Whereas, you know, some people like, oh, God, they're defeated. You know, it's not going to work. So, you know, it's kind of like how you're going to take a stressor and what your mindset mm-hmm. you know i wonder if situations like that you know you can train people to kind of you know someone who's not taking stress very well get some inspiration in your life and rather than making it a negative thing which is a big problem right stress yeah. in america i mean spent a whole podcast talking about that um, about the negative effects of stress but maybe as you pointed out maybe we can find a way that people to turn it around you know
0: that that connection the mind heart connection it's so fascinating just to think what our potential can be, you know? That's something that it drives me every day to love medicine more and more, you know? So, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, man, it's
1: real. And you know, just to finish on that note, it's people who have had heart attacks, who have heart disease, they have a higher, much higher incidence of depression that goes untreated. And people with depression, actually, that's thought to be a risk factor for heart disease. So depression can have negative effects, not just in acute stress-related phase, but long-term, it can almost be like a chronic
0: disease. It's actually heart month right now, right? Yes. And, and you started a pretty big movement on uh, Instagram, and I really appreciated it because uh, my dad actually just had a cabbage. Okay. You know, his his case was just miraculous, like because he had collateral circulation, so he actually had a hundred percent occlusion of his left circumflex, but That's he had true. collateral circulation that worked around it. Yep. He never had an MI. So right. I, I was looking at it. I'm like, Dad, this is stable angina. You know, we'll take you to an inter- interventional cardiologist. We'll have that stent put in. It'll be no problem. Pretty non-invasive. Ends up, he needs a cabbage, man. And, oh. you know, this is uh, you started this movement, and it really, it was actually right around the time that happened, right? So you oh. were talking about South Asians and heart disease, right? So yeah. can you give yeah. us some facts, just? about heart disease and South Asians and heart disease.
1: Uh, me and um, uh, Clear Skin Doc on Instagram, we both yeah. started this together, so I'll give her a shout out. South Asians, I mean, you know, being South Asian myself, you're South Asian, I had treated a lot of South Asians in my uh, in my training in New York as well. I felt like people who are Indian, Pakistani, Guyanese, all these South Asians, they just come in at a much younger age and they, they have heart attacks and stents and stuff. You know, even in their most more in their 40s and 30s, 40s, 50s, even people. I've even had people in their 30s having stuff. So as, you know, my training progressed, I'm like, you see it more and more. And then when you look into the data and you look at the numbers and, you know, the statistics, it's true. I mean, we as South Asians, we get heart disease at a much younger age. Our incidence of uh, heart disease is higher. I mean, this is women and men. You know, chances of it being more advanced and more severe are also higher. Um, And the mortality from having a heart attack is also higher. But the biggest thing is, you know, it seems that the heart disease is occurring at a much younger age. A lot of people will point to diet and lifestyle, you know, and I'm sure that's a big part of it. And we all know Desi food, the food we eat, you know, our our parents cook, we go to our homeland. I mean, it it ain't, it it tastes (laughs) damn good, man. Uh, It may not be the healthiest, you know. That being said, that's not the only feature. They're, um, you know, they're pretty healthy eating vegetarian um, Desi people as well, or um, South Asian people who get heart disease at a much younger age. They've done calcium scoring studies where they do CAT scans to look at people's hearts, um, to look at the amount of calcium's um, buildup in the arteries, and they saw those numbers were a lot higher for uh, South Asians as well at a younger age. And our cholesterol profiles are different. All this, all the data we have, in, uh, largely comes from America and Europe, and they're looking at um, you know risk factors. Smaller minority of African Americans, but you know very few South Asians, right? Yeah. So all yeah. this, these lipid numbers and the risk factors and profiles, it's not really coming from our people. And we know that we're distinctly a little bit different metabolically. You know, our cholesterol profiles are totally different. We often don't have very high LDLs, but we have very low HDLs, which is a risk factor. I think there's a genetic predisposition to South Asians having, you know, earlier onset of coronary disease. There's some genes floating around in our pool that, um, you know, puts us at a higher risk for heart disease. And on top of that, we also happen to be the least active and relatively unhealthy eaters. And this is true this data from Fitbit. So Fitbit collects yeah. all this data, I thought this was fascinating, from all these countries, millions of people, and they plotted at number of steps and activity per day. The worst were Pakistan and India. I knew it, I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> at least active per day. We get more heart disease at a younger age, we don't do anything, you know? So I was like, we gotta start telling our, you know, our uh, our friends and family, aunties and uncles, we gotta start spreading some more health awareness. I think it comes down to education, man.
0: You know, it's funny because it's like, the doctor or the engineer or the lawyer is mostly sitting on their butt. Says, when did
1: our parents ever say, go to the, go, go go for a run? Maybe that's why the Fitbit data is so bad, because all these dudes in Fox and India are starting to be doctors to come to America, they're just busy studying. <laughs>
0: You know, we're talking about mental health. I know in the Brown community, man, um, at least from my experience, they don't believe in mental health. They don't don't think that addressing their problems is like a thing. But then I feel like all that stuff they just keep inside, it adds to that stress. And then it costs oh, stuff like this. I'm
1: glad you brought that up and you're totally trying. It's almost like a stigma in our in our communities. It's like, oh, depression, no, you don't do that. You would never admit it, God forbid. And like yeah. my wife's a psychiatrist. Some of our family members, they don't even believe in that. It's like, What is anxiety, depression? Like, I don't understand this nonsense. It's like a cultural thing and you're right. I think that's probably negatively contributing because yeah. no one's seeking help or attention or they're too scared to and it's almost not even identified. I think that's probably a big part of it, you know?
0: Yeah, I've started having exercises in my family. Like I have, family meetings I'm like everybody sit down like especially the men in the house we need to talk about how we feel and like we need to communicate cuz you know they we the men just keep it inside and then you know they have heart disease all of a sudden <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> so, they
1: will never like they'll just be stoic and they won't you know they won't talk about that stuff and they won't show weakness and so, yeah the stats that I gave you you know our numbers are bad and high but clearly we've just identified so many ways that we can impact that right diet, lifestyle, mental health, exercise. I mean, that's huge, right? I mean, those yep. things are big. Numbers may be poor, but there's clearly
0: a lot of ways that we can intervene. We just got to get them on the, on the on the on the page, man. And a Fitbit. I'm about to get one after this. Yeah. So <laughs> I'd like to transition to our last and most popular portion of our podcast. That's the audience questions. I was telling you earlier today, you actually had the second most question submissions on the Medspiration podcast history. So you know, we had right. to add some bonus questions in there. So I think people are really looking forward to hearing the answers to this, right? I'll, so I'll
1: do, my, I'll do my best.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, let's get straight into it. So question number one was by Deegs07. This is actually my friend Diego. I went to high school with him. So oh, is that right? shout out to Diego. He asked, what are the physiological differences between fasting daily versus one 24-hour fast one day a week?
1: Good question. You know, I, I don't know if I can answer that. I got to be <laughs> honest with you. You know, to get the benefit of intermittent fasting, I think you have to have a period of time that's at least eight hours, um, eight to ten hours, to get that benefit uh, of what you're getting out of it. Whether uh, pushing that to 24 hours, you know, I don't really know if um, you know. Is there a point where you can actually cause you know, maybe some negative effects? Um, okay. whether there's an actual benefit physiologically to 24 hours? I don't know and I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, but can it accelerate your goals of, you know, fat burning and all that stuff? That may be true, but that's just my, you know, my gestalt and guess.
0: So we have question number two by HWA Pod 6 okay. They said, is it true that running too much is bad for your heart?
1: It's actually a very good question. We always recommend exercise, right? So I mean, the American Heart Association recommends at least a minimum of 30 minutes a day, Five days a week of at least brisk walking that will break a sweat okay yeah. for most people most people can't do very heavy exercise Well, a lot of people can't so that's what you want but at the same time too much exercise you can get now we know this from marathon runners they've done studies where you know they looked at marathon runners and they've done troponin values on marathon runners at the end oh. of one marathons and a lot of marathon runners will see troponin values that are a little bit elevated there are people who are highly trained But there are people who are doing a lot of running who may not be, you know, as trained. I personally think, you know, marathon running is, you know, it's a different breed of people. But when you're getting to that level, it can be deleterious. And we see, I have patients who are big time runners and they've, you know, they've dropped out of heart attacks. And we know if you overdo it, you can increase the risk uh, of having heart attack and strokes, particularly depending on individual people's conditioning and, you know, um, situations like that.
0: Just my question personally, what's a heart rate that you would want to aim for when you're exercising? Because, you know, I'm always looking at my heart rate when I'm doing the stair step or when I'm running, right? So what's your recommendation when it comes to that?
1: Good question. I mean, like, you know, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. To put it in one extreme, when we're doing a stress test on somebody, right, and we're trying to get max. Exercise capacity, max peak capacity, we're trying to get them to 80% of their predicted heart rate. Got so it. that's like the maximum level of aerobic capacity that we can we want to obtain when we do the stress test. So you know it's really age related. Your quote maximum heart rate is 220 minus your age. If you want to train at a high level, 60 to 80 percent of your of that max heart rate is kind of a goal if you're really trying to train. But honestly, if you get your heart rate, depending on where your age is, even to the 120s, 130s, that's something. Not everybody needs to get their heart rate to the 160s. You don't need to, you know, if you do 220 minus your age, that's your max your heart rate. You don't need to get anywhere near that. If you get, you know, up to 80% of that, that's all you need, bro.
0: So we got question number three by Dr. underscore Himradi underscore Vicaria. Sorry if I butchered that name. What can you tell us about dairy and heart health?
1: Dairy and hearthill. Also a very controversial and hotly debated topic. You know, and over the years, dairy gets a bad rap, it gets a good rap. You know, again, another perfect example of like we don't really have enough data and trials to be definitive. Um, a lot of it's just kind of anecdotes of what people think based on what's in dairy. So, but I will say, for example, the DASH diet we talked about, dairy is included in the DASH diet, right? So low-fat dairy, because dairy has a lot of good stuff too, right? Potassium, calcium, magnesium. It's got important things that, um, you know, will help blood pressure and help heart health. Um, but on the downside, full fat dairy stuff has saturated fats, right? So the thought is that too much um, full fat dairy will have higher saturated fats, which will in turn increase your bad cholesterol, which can cause deleterious effects. But on the other hand, if you do non-fat dairy, that will have less of those healthier mineral stuff. Now, there's some diets that completely limit dairy. They, you know, they say that it's no good. But, you know, there's been some meta-analyses, interestingly, that looked at um, looking at multiple trials, and it showed that, you know what, dairy, people who eat full-fat dairy versus those who uh, don't or eat no dairy, there was no difference in the amount of heart disease. And In some cases, in some trials, they saw that, oh, and some people who eat full-fat dairy, there was even less heart disease. So I think the, the bottom line is we don't really know the answer to that. I'm more of a full-balance guy. I think it's important to have some dairy, keep it in the low-fat dairy. Uh, aside, this doesn't mean you're going to be going out eating cheese every day butter and obviously butter is a
0: different story because that's that doesn't count as quote dairy guys so yeah the verdict is you know it's unclear question number four is actually a question i would ask as well so show underscore banana asks what are your thoughts on pre-workout supplements which is something that i'm very interested in learning more about i haven't done any research about it but then she also says especially if you have a known cardiac issue so what do you got for us
1: I'm never a big fan of supplements, at least when it comes to cardiac disease, because to me, the supplement market is huge. It is, it's a money-making machine. You know, you gotta be careful with supplements because theres they don't have the standards, right? FDA does not label the medication, so it's not regulated. Any supplement can be thrown out there with little to no data. Most of the time people don't really know what they're taking, right? Anything you take in a supplement, you can get with diet, you know, for the most part, right? Supplement is a broad term, so it really would define what people are talking about. You know, a protein shake to increase your protein intake, this and that is different. But you know, taking supplement and tablets and these fat burners and these muscle building energy stuff, there's there's evidence that they can cause deleterious effects, especially yeah. cardiac-wise over time. So my cardiac patients have tell them I don't want you taking any supplements. But even younger people who are trying to use this for fat burning, muscle building, whatnot, you gotta be really careful out there.
0: You know, we we did a Medspired Army post recently. One of my friends, Austin, from high school, mm-hmm. he was taking ephedra, which was like a fat burner, and he ended up having congestive heart failure at 30, and now he, he had an LVAD place, and he's, he's wow. looking for a heart transplant because yeah. of the stuff that was in it. There are
1: case reports of ephedra, um, which is in a lot of these supplements by the fat burners, that can lead to cardiomyopathy. And similar wow. to what we talked about with the cocaine and alcohol and all that, the right yep. person, the wrong person you know, a supplement or a medication, how is that different, right?
0: Yeah, he's uh, he's doing well right now, so we'll definitely follow up with him, you know, because just seeing that at 30, you're like, dude, like that was – So young, and he he looked like he was in great shape. So you know that's that's one of the worst things about these supplements is when exercising on them, you look better. So you think physically, I look better. You think internally, I'm gonna look better. But a lot of these supplements, they give you that physical, but then internally, they're they're doing the opposite. Chewing you up,
1: yeah. And these aren't they're not FDA regulated, right? So any Joe Schmo can throw them out there. You know, make money off you.
0: Ask your doctor, anybody out there who's trying to use a supplement, come to your doctor, bring the supplement to your doctor. Bring it them, make exactly sure right. it's, it's never going to hurt to do so. Question number 5 Malls Mals11 asks, what advice do you have for a first-year med student interested in cardiology?
1: Okay, good question. Number one, get ready for a long road. Um, <laughs> my one advice for you is, whether it's cardiology or anything, make sure it's something that you love and you really want to do. You got to like what you do because it's dedication. It's going to take... Uh, it's going to take a lot of time out of your life, and it's going to affect how your life courses. You know, even your personal life. So it's a lot of sacrifice. So number one, you got to really want to do it. Um, as far as cardiology goes, you know, it's one of the more competitive fields. Obviously, never hurts to start early. And you know, when you're applying for residency, then after that fellowship, is study your ass off. Okay, get that two fifty. <laughs> get that two fifty. I mean, I hate to say it. But step yeah. one's probably the most important thing. Crush that step one, bro. I mean, yeah. you know, that's 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 so important. Not that if you don't, you know, you you there's other stuff, other stuff, but it's just gonna make life so much easier.
0: All right. So question number six, med student four asks, how many hours do you typically work? How many calls? And what's a typical day in the life?
1: Great question. Now, keep in mind this. This will vary by the type of practitioner, right? I mean, I could give you an example, I'm gonna give you an example of what I do, then I'm gonna give you an example of what one of my friends does, for example, right? So as an interventional cardiologist, again, and I do a little bit of both, right? I do procedures and I do um, regular cardiology. So for me, I spend two and a half to three days in the office, and then I'm two to two and a half days in the hospital, that's my five day week. Excluding calls, so days that I'm not on call, if I combine and kind of average things out, of course there's longer days and less days. I would say I probably get there around seven thirty-eight and I'm usually done by four thirty-five. No, oh, which is not bad. There'll be some days I'm there till like six, but it's rare I'm there super late. Hospital days, get there at seven thirty. Usually I'm done by five thirty six, but there's some days uh, I'm there later till seven thirty or eight. But I would say averaging out, I'll probably work between forty to fifty hours a week. There are days when weeks I'm on call, you know, um, I may be in the hospital, you know, 50 to 60, in bad days. But okay. you know, there are nice smooth sailing weeks where I, you know, I've had times where I had a 40, 40 44 half hour work week, man. Call is a big thing. You always think about how often I'm working on weekends. I'm, I got pretty lucky, I work one every six weekends. So it's okay. not that bad. And when I around on the weekend, I go to three different hospitals. But I'm usually, if I got to see 20 to 30 patients, I can go in the morning and I can be done by the afternoon. Um, Of course, when I'm doing angioplasty interventional call, you know, all bets are off. That's not as often. I'm one every 12 weekends and I can get crushed. Just to compare you to a friend of mine who took a job in New York that I thought about taking, but I didn't, you know, that's why I moved out of New York, wanted to stay in New York, but you know, I I wanted a, a quality of life. He works probably, you know, 60 hours a week. That's like a normal week for him and on weekends, he's probably working from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. every day of the weekend when he's working every three weekends. And a lot of it will depend on, you know, what type of practice and where you're going to be.
0: I appreciate that advice. You know, I'm just about to find out where I'm matching in March. So, you know,
1: what do you plan for
0: uh, internal or family? Those are what the two I that I applied into. Right. Excellent. So
1: good luck. Yeah. man. I'm sure Wish you're good, going to good, you know
0: yeah yeah wish me luck man that's uh it's nice to see you on the other side you paid your dues and now it's like you know hearing forty, 40 50 hour work week i mean for what you chose that's beautiful you know so yeah, that's it's not bad i
1: mean a couple of days i work hard the other days as long as it's not every day it's the choice i made and the practice i'm in and you know they're, they're options so you got to remember wherever you choose in medicine think about what is the field you want but what's important to you is geography important to you is it important where you are is salary important to you you want to be in New York City, and you want to have a quality of life, and you want to make X amount of money, you're not going to get all that. Um, or you want to be in San Francisco and have all that. But if you're willing to sacrifice where you are because you want to do this field, if you're, um, you know, you don't really care about how many years you're going to um, practice and loans you rack up, and you want, you know, is it, is it lifestyle, is it salary, all these. So you gotta, you gotta think about all of these things. You're never gonna have everything you want.
0: So, last question: What is your definition of medspiration?
1: I, I see how you took medicine inspiration, but the letters and the words in there it might it melds more than just mind and body. I think you know. I think I know you're going through the mind and body connection thing. And even you know, I learned a few things just having our conversation. You know, you got to take everything part of it. So, me, the first word's me, right? Me is important. That's part of it. Then for me is med, medicine, we medicine, all medicine and at least we're in the medicine angle. So that's important. You got to think about anatomically, I think of the medicine portion of it, then the inspiration portion, you know, it's got spirit in it. It's got inspiration. In it, it's got mind in it. Right. So all it's a perfect example, I think, of how things all those things are well connected. You can't some people are over the you know, they're just very spiritual. They don't believe in X, Y and Z. And they think meditation will cure everything. But then they're, they're very kind of. Other minded people like, you know, science, anatomic, this and that. But you know what? I think the combination of those things is what's going to make people a good doctor, a good patient and a good person. And you got to have a better understanding of what you can see and understand and what you can't.
0: Yeah, our big philosophy is mind, body, spirit. You know, it's all about having that balance. So thank you. Thank you. That's such a deep uh, interpretation. I
1: went went deep on that one. But, you know,
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dr. Hader. We appreciate having you on, man.
1: No, man. Thank you for having me, man. I had a good time talking to you, bro.
0: There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling fired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. For example, our newest sponsorship with Picmonic is currently helping us fund our ongoing work at a small children's school in cambodia if you're currently a future healthcare professional and are studying tons don't forget to check out picmonics learning tools for free you can use the discount code medspiration for 20 percent off any membership please visit picmonic.com for more we'll be sure to leave a link in the description below let's make a commitment together guys and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle mentally Physically and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something medspiring.